0: Welcome to Lame Stream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like the show, rate, review, subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. We would really, really appreciate it. And hey, just tell someone about the podcast. That's what it's all about.
1: Absolutely. Our guest today on the show, David Ubbin of The Athletic. He's been on the Tennessee Beat for about three years. He is leaving to sort of cover college football nationally, still for... The Athletic. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to to, to conduct an exit interview with him and, and all of his experiences in Knoxville. He Nothing short of spectacular. He's a, an excellent journalist. He's an award-winning journalist for a reason. Uh, I think you guys are really, really going to like the conversation. Uh, we will have a, a, a deeper, longer version of recommendations on the show, Steve, as it pertains to some small current events happening in the world currently uh, and the media coverage of those events which is very very frustrating Uh, but we'll get to all of that uh, coming up a little bit later on after the interview however steve lamestream is brought to you by jaspers it's always
0: brought to you by jaspers 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 jaspers
1: the parking is free the menu is great the happy hour is the best in the city i don't know what else you need to know about jaspers the booze it is frozen and it's unfortunately it's not free but that's to be expected with booze so sure sort of standard operating procedure with booze sure
0: they make you pay for the booze. Yeah, but it's, not the it's not the parking. It's why the parking is free. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs>
1: the, the amount of money they're making on the booze is what covers the parking lot being free. It's fantastic. Exactly. Uh, no, go to Jasper's and check it out. So again, we'll have a, a little a little bit longer conversation with recommendations as it pertains to sort of media coverage of what's happening in the world right now. Um, maybe not as centered on Nashville per se, but um, certainly some media lessons we can take. But David Ubbin, Steve, I, I look. We'll get right to the interview here because he is. Uh, a spectacular writer. I think he's got all the right approaches to how to write stories and cover a team and create value for his readers. I I just thoroughly enjoy talking with him. I've known him for a very long time and glad we got to talk with him on his sort of way out of the Tennessee beat.
0: I I was unfamiliar with him before he came to the beat. And so it's been fun kind of watching, meeting him through, through his coverage. He's a very good writer. I think he embraced the, the, the way the athletic approaches beat coverage very well in not trying to do every daily incremental story, but like tell the most interesting parts of it Uh, as a fan, you know, that that's what I want. Uh, And and I think I'm really excited to see what he does on the national stage uh, after kind of killing it for on the UTB for three years. He's got a lot of thoughts
1: on college football and access and how it's changing and how you cover it. He's got a lot of thoughts on the Jeremy Pruitt coaching staff in the era with which, of course, he covered the vast majority, maybe some of the changes that are coming, a lot of memories about some of his favorite interviews and people that he's interacted with and and, and writing about Tennessee fans, a lot of really great stuff. So without any more from you and I, Steve, this was our conversation with the Athletics' David Ubbin. (laughs) David, good to see you, man. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Great to have you on the
2: show. How are you? I'm doing good, guys. Uh, myself, much like college football, in a state of transition. So <laughs> we're figuring it out as we go.
1: Well, we'll get to that, and congratulations on the promotion. You are leaving the Tennessee beat, so we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. So this is sort of your exit interview for Tennessee fans out there. <laughs> um, at- I suppose
2: if I'm going to do them, I should, I should submit myself to them, right? So.
1: <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> Well, let, let's get started. You came on to the beat covering Tennessee. I, I, I had probably interviewed you, I don't know, God, a dozen times covering the Big 12 and mm-hmm. uh, with ESPN. Um, and you come to the Tennessee beat a couple of months after the entire coup attempt with F- Uncle Phil and Jeremy Pruitt and that whole Greg Schiano thing and all that stuff that happens. What was your sort of perception of all of those transpirings from the outside looking in? And, and how was it different when you got onto the beat a couple of months later?
2: I mean, I think just you could see the discord, um, you know, between all of the um, lack of cohesion at the, you know, you have the head coaching level, the athletic director and the president. When you have really successful programs, those are all aligned for a lot of places. And at Tennessee... He had so much turnover at the presidential level, obviously so much turnover at the uh, athletic department level or at the athletic director level. And then of course, everybody knows about the coaching turnover um, at Tennessee as well. And so when you have all that, and then you add to that sort of the fan unrest, you have a lot of people that are kind of not speaking the same language. And that's kind of when I arrived is that you have fans want to win. Everybody wants to win, but nobody can really agree on the path to do that. And so chronicling,
0: their attempt over the last three years has been really interesting. That alignment is really, is interesting on, on your way out of the Tennessee beat. Is that alignment there now uh, with, uh, with a new set of folks or is it too early to tell yet? I mean, it's too early to
2: tell. I don't know, uh, you know, that's, with the NCAA investigation and how all that stuff happened and, and some of the decisions at the university level, I don't know that everyone's really in agreement there uh, winning helps. That's, you know, it's sort of a chicken and egg conversation. Did everybody stay aligned because they were winning or were they winning because they stayed aligned and uh, you know, nobody got fired and all that stuff. It's sort of, you know, maybe in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I don't know that Tennessee has quite reached that uh, kumbaya nirvana level uh, at this point. I don't know that they're ready to, uh, uh, you know, all move in a house together and, and start a reality show. I, I think that's, you know, <laughs> short of a battle royale, but not exactly best friends, I guess. What, what, what surprised you
1: when, when you got to, to Knoxville and, and as you changed jobs and got there and sort of got onto the beat? Was there anything that stood out to you that, that maybe you didn't expect?
2: No, not really. I mean, I think I was familiar with the program. My, my wife and her family are from Knoxville. So I'd been here twice a year for, you know, six or seven years before we moved here. So I was pretty familiar with the area, pretty familiar with Tennessee and sort of the fan base a little bit. And, of course, obviously watching from the outside, um, seeing things, uh, I would say it, it probably met about what I expected um, in
0: terms of just what it was going to be like here. So, so coming from big 12 country, did it mean more once it was here or, uh, (laughs) I mean, it
2: does, it just does. I, I, you know, uh, that's just a fact, like, you know, Oklahoma is one thing, but like, you know, I I think Texas A&M and Nebraska were the two most passionate fan bases in the big 12 Nebraska obviously is in the big 10. Now Texas A&M, you know, anyone in Texas can tell you Texas A&M has a more passionate fan base than Texas does. There's no such thing as a, as a uh, casual Texas A&M fan. You, you can't find them. There's a lot of casual Texas fans. Texas fans base is bigger. That's part of that. Um, but in the sec, you know, you see a lot of that, of people that just sort of eat sleep and breathe their programs 365 days a year. And football is all that really matters. And, you know, we make fun of it because it's so self-important and so ridiculous, but it does mean more like it, it just does. And, and um, so I'll certainly be around SEC country quite a bit um, still more. I'll be doing plenty of SEC stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, when it just means more, that means uh, more people are going to write about it as well. So
1: that's kind of where we're at. You did a, a really fascinating sort of stretch of just talking to those people. Like, I mean, that was a, a big part of kind of what you brought to the, the beat. Obviously, you had to do the other stuff that sort of comes along with the job, but you sort of went out and, and, and sought out some of these fans and told their stories. What, what, it, what was the sort of impetus behind all of that?
2: they're interesting like that's that's kind of the charge of what our job is is like just tell interesting stories like certainly there's a watchdog element of it less so in sports than in you know politics or city hall or or the education beat or all those things there's some of that and if there's victims obviously we want to write about those things but at the end of the day this is entertainment right and we want to write interesting stories i think one of the things that that i sort of use as sort of my north star anything i'm doing is tell you more about the people that you know already and introduce you to people that you should know. And like Tennessee fans are like a never ending wellspring of like interesting stories because they care a lot. They care a lot. And that passion uh, combined with the lack of return on investment. I mean, it's just like ready-made human (laughs) drama. Like all these, all these people want this thing so badly and can't really do anything in reality to get it and yet they still wake up every morning oh man you know how long until Tennessee is back and that that tension is something that I wanted to write about a lot um, and we did quite a bit and and, and and you know if there's any more good stories I'm up for telling them They're, Tennessee I mean fan stories are always interesting but Tennessee fans and the existence that they've lived over the last 10 or 15 years is you know it's hard to deal with when you've been dominant for so long and you, know, you have 15 years of the opposite of that. When you're used to kicking dirt in people's faces and all of a sudden that dirt's getting kicked in your face for more than a decade, I mean, the, the generational tensions and all those things and you know, people, people, the way that people that are 40 and above perceive Tennessee in the state and outside of the state and 40 and below is just, it's different. Is that, do you think
1: that's led directly to a different approach to this particular season, this coaching staff, this situation that they are currently entering right now as we are just you know, weeks away from playing Bowling Green?
2: I mean, maybe I think you're, you're battling empathy. I mean, you look at the season ticket numbers, that's a real concerning situation in Tennessee because that's sort of, it's not a be all end all, but it's a pretty good barometer of where things are and the pandemic doesn't help. Um, And, you know, between uh, you know, people that are concerned about safety or don't, or have their own uh, financial issues from the last 18 months, you know, it's all over the map. It it doesn't help your, your season ticket numbers but you look around and there's other places that are set in season ticket record. It's not a universal thing, but Tennessee has to deal with that. And the way the last season ended and the investigation and like the closed offness and people didn't feel like they were very connected to this program. Empathy is a big problem for Tennessee right now. And so that's what they're trying to combat Winning is really the only magic elixir, but, you know, the openness I think helps. And so in some ways, a response, I mean, it's where you see this with uh, uh, coaching hires all the time, that when you fire somebody and you don't like them, you're going to get the exact opposite. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Jeremy Pruitt was the exact opposite of Butch Jones. And in many other ways, Josh Hype was the exact opposite of, Jer- of Jeremy Pruitt. And so, it's sort of this natural sort of pendulum swing and Tennessee is hoping that, you know, once in a while, they're going to be able to hit that and and be able to strike midnight, I guess.
0: Longtime Tennessee observers might call that whiplash as much as a (laughs) uh, pendulum swing.
2: Yeah, you might be right. I mean, I think they just, they just want it so bad. And, um, you know, there's only so much you can do, you know, you got to quote unquote support the team, but like, they can't hire the coaches for them. I mean, I guess a select few number of fans can help out with that, but that's not a very large number. And, and, you know, when Tennessee finds themselves in the situation they were in last year, um, you know, making those hires is difficult. So I feel for Tennessee fans, you know, it's sort of, uh, sort of a Sisyphusian struggle in, in a lot of ways.
0: One of, the, one of the advantages Tennessee had when they were building up this, this program that kind of culminated in like the late nineties and, and, and aughts was, this ability to kind of reach out uh, across the country and recruit and bring those folks to Knoxville. Mm -hmm. What do you think from, from being in the middle of the, of the beat here the last few years, what do you think Tennessee's position is nationally? And, and how do you think are they positioned where they can, they could go do that again, or is this just going to take years to crawl out of? I mean, it's going to be hard
2: because for the longest time, the, the, the the MO was you got to dominate in Tennessee, go get Memphis. Uh, And then you got to, you know, South Carolina, you can go get those guys. You got to go win in Atlanta, do okay in Florida, where it's it's always sort of a snake pit to try and get guys out of there. But that was a pretty winning formula. Well, now if you try to go to Memphis, Ole Miss is a factor. Mississippi State's a factor. They are. You go to South Carolina. I mean, you basically are South Carolina's peer now, where you used to be the bully. And then you have Clemson, which you're looking way up at. Like Clemson's is another stratosphere. So pulling the best guys out of South Carolina, all of a sudden is really, really hard. Then you have Kirby smart in Georgia, and then you have Nick Saban in Alabama sort of siphoning off all the top guys in that entire same recruiting area. It's really hard because when you're, you know, again, you sort of get back to the chicken and egg situation. It's Tennessee struggling to recruit because they can't win, or are they struggling to win because they can't recruit? It's sort of all the same thing. And when you recruit pretty well, like Butch Jones did and, you know, develop guys, or you recruit pretty well, you know, like Jeremy Pruitt did, but your system is sort of fundamentally flawed in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, you're up against it, but getting those elite elite guys to, to get to the playoff and 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 be the program that Tennessee wants is going to be really, really hard because you're now, you know, to go into South Carolina and beat Clemson out, go into Georgia, beat Georgia out. What What are you selling? That's a really hard question without a good answer. If you walk into a kid's, you know, home living room and say hey i know you got that georgia offer and i know you you live here in atlanta and you want to be close but come to tennessee why Uh, there's not a great
1: answer for that playing time and a fan base that wants to pay for your name image and likeness
2: well, but that, does that I mean, resonate in Georgia? Does that resonate in Georgia and outside the state? Like the name, image, and likeness thing, I think, I think can resonate inside the state in right. some ways, but less so when Nick Saban calls the kid that you want and offers him the same stuff and his quarterback at the start of the game is making, you know, close to seven yeah. figures. It's, you know, it, that's, it's tough. You know, I, I don't envy Josh Heupel because, you know, right now, you know, playing time only gets you so far and the best guys aren't, always concerned about playing time they're concerned about i want to get to the next level and when you have so many programs that have done that it's tough to 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 sell that
1: and and you can actually keep going around the radius too you can say you know mac brown in north carolina is better than they've been at recruiting mark stoops which is dominating sort of southern ohio which is an area that tennessee has done well you've got kentucky better than it's ever been before you can Mm -hmm. kind of do the whole the the whole circle around everything is more difficult everything Everything
2: Um, and everywhere. And it comes down to recruiting and like, you know, you can have some sales pitches when you're going up against Kentucky or South Carolina or Ole Miss. But like I said, those elite elite guys that make you the program you want to be, you know, trying to sell them over Alabama and Georgia is tough. You
1: you talk about the steps sort of crawling out of this and the first step that I can kind of think of. And again, I want to know you were on the sort of boots on the ground on this. What was sort of the, the, you know, Dondi Plowman and and bringing in this law firm to begin the investigation, that sort of seemed like the beginning of maybe adults being in control of this program for the first time in a while, maybe cynically, but but certainly it looked like they, they were in control. You said that not everybody is still sort of aligned. What was that experience like from, you know, mid-November trying to report on what's happening inside this athletic department where we've got a coach and a buyout and an NCAA investigation and all these all these national reporters are throwing out all these stories and some of them are accurate and some of them are not. What, what was reporting like trying to get the information correct during those those couple of months?
2: I mean, very frustrating because everything everything was hearsay. So we can't really report that like you hear stuff, but it's all like, hey, the investigation came. This person was interviewed and then they leave the interview and a couple people ask him, hey, what did you talk about? so-and-so and then that sort of gets around and you talk to people so things get back to you but nothing that you can really report it was very like buttoned up but then the more people you talk to you're like hey the existence of this investigation basically means that that jeremy is out they're trying to figure this out like you keep hearing that you keep hearing that and you're kind of looking around and you're going are they really going to do this like This seems like not a great idea, but it seems like everyone you talk to is like, no, like this is trending real like there. It's a matter of time. It's a when, not if situation. And you're kind of like. You don't really want to believe it because it doesn't make sense, but enough people, you keep hearing it over and over again. And you're like, I guess this is what's going to happen. And then eventually it happens. And you're kind of like, well, Godspeed, guys, this is a dangerous road.
0: A, I want to talk a, a little bit about kind of beat coverage, particularly within college football right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you came in to The Athletic, and, and your, your, your mission was not to write every incremental story. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, it was to write the deeper stuff, the more explanatory pieces, uh, and, and kind of, like you said, you'll give that flavor of who's supporting Tennessee and, and, and very much their frustrations. And I think you've done a great job kind of cataloging that. Uh, how has this changed over the last three years? Because, you know, the the athletic has layered in this this more real time kind of piece to uh, to the site and to and, and to coverage. Has it did it change your job any? And, and and what do you think kind of that beat's going to look like going forward?
2: Yeah, I mean a little bit. I mean, we're always looking for ways to expand our readership. You know, I think. Um, You know, for us, getting to a million subscribers was really meaningful and really huge for us, because you you get up there and you start looking around. You know, we're four or five years old, I forget, and you look around at all the other people, all the other publications that are uh, in that space, and it's places that are 150, you know, 150 years old. And for us to be able to do that really felt special. We want to keep going. We we have barely scratched the surface. I mean, you can walk. If I walk downtown you know and i asked 50 people hey what do you think of the athletic half or maybe more might still say i don't know what that is that's good news for us cuz we're we're doing good and there's still a lot of uh, leeway for us to, to continue to build. And so news is a great way to do that. Um, and, and being able to build out, um, you know, and let people know uh, who we are and, and being able to do that. And, you know, our bread and butter, I think, is always still going to be those in-depth stories, those things that draw people in um, and and doing those kinds of stories that no one else is doing. Um, and, that's sort of what differentiates us and differentiation is hugely important for us, but so is growth. And so is keeping people engaged. And, um, you know, for us just sort of keep on keeping on, it's been, uh, you know, I came on, I started freelancing for something years ago for this company and I've been full-time for more than three years now. And, um, it's been awesome to see um, because we built this and it's been awesome to see the success and, and how we were just barely scratching the surface right now and, and how much room we still have to grow.
1: You, you mentioned sort of your North star on how you, you know, it's here, here are the people I want to tell you more about that you care about. And I'm going to try to introduce you to some people that maybe you, you should care about, right? That's kind of your mm-hmm. North star. So when you go into a, a story, whether it's about a fan or about a coach or a game or whatever, and your, and your goal is to sort of stick to that, athletic ethos of sort of going deeper and peeling back the layers and giving people a really deep story. What, what is your process for, for how you kind of start to, you know, systematically approach that kind of story?
2: Well, I think it's, you know, for me. Um, so let's take two types of stories, right? So for me, so one big story that I like is one central question, like what happened here or what, you know, if you're trying to answer a question, a simple question that fans want to know, Well, I want to talk to everyone who would be involved or might have the answer to that question. And you might get different answers, but like just talk to as many people as you can. If you're trying to tell somebody about a person, who are the people that know this person best? Sometimes the person might be a pretty good source for talking about themselves, but most often that's not the case. So... You know, people would always, you know, I hear this a lot. Of like, Tennessee, oh, their access was so bad for three years under Jeremy Pruitt. How did you write all these stories? Like, I never really cared all that much because if I'm writing a story about uh Jawan Jennings or something like that I guess that's a bad example because I did get to sit down with him the Brian Niedermeyer story is a great example right okay this guy's background in Alaska he's a commercial fisherman when he's like 14 years old to say nothing of how it ended at Tennessee it's a fascinating background story well I didn't get to sit down with, with Brian Niedermeyer for that story but I went to Alaska and talked about just about everybody that knew that knows him well, I don't feel like we really need to talk to Brian for that story. Like, we got a lot of we, – we were able to tell people who this guy is and what his deal is and how he ended up being where he was um, because people that are around you probably know you a lot better than you know yourself, and especially what you're willing to say to a reporter about yourself. You get a lot of, like, false modesty or, you know, all this stuff. or You know, it's just not – it's often not productive. I think where it can get productive is when – You know, like for the Jeremy Pruitt profile series we did when we when I first came aboard, is you get all these stories and all these nuggets, and you ask that person directly about this, like tell me about this or what do you think about this. That can be really interesting. Like the Mike Eckler story, same deal. I think I called like it was a lot of people, like just and I just said, hey, tell me all of your best Mike Eckler stories. I want to hear all of the good Mike because like there has to be a bajillion, and there were. And so then when I got to sit down with him, asking him about all these stories and him just laughing and like somehow the story would be like even more insane than what I thought it was like initially. And like the more layers you dug, it was just like wild. Uh, and so that's sort of where I start from, you know, if I'm talking about an, an issue or a feature on something you know, It starts with a central question. You know, And then the best stories, the ones that I like to do, are where I'm just trying to answer that question. Who can help me find the answer to this question? Let's find those people and let's go talk to them. Or if I'm trying to find out about a person, who knows this guy or this girl? Who is going to be able to give me the best insight into this person? And I try to find those people and talk to them. And it's not rocket science, I think.
1: Lame Stream, Steve, is brought to you by...
0: Jasper! Okay, I don't know what that one was, but I I liked it. I was was in the mountains this week. I was going to try to do like a Matterhorn kind of thing, and it kind of didn't come out that way, so whatever. Well, and
1: again, I'll tell you this now for like the third or fourth time in a row. When you scream like that, the microphone goes out and we can't hear it. So we only hear like bits and pieces of it. Go to
0: Jasper's. Uh I mean, at this point, that's what people expect.
1: So <laughs> that,
0: that, that that's just true. what they expect.
1: That is true. With football coming, folks, you need a place to go on basically Thursday night through Monday night coming up in like two weeks. You're going to have gonna... to go home at some point. No, but you can come no. back often. No, go to Jasper's where we encourage you never to go home. <laughs> just thir- Thursday after work. Just go to Jasper's. Sleep in your s- car. It'll be free. <laughs> They can't tell you if you're sleeping in the car, can you? Can they? Maybe they can't. I don't think
0: so. Don't well, they'll you'll know if they're if they're going in. Very <laughs> well, they much might,
1: so. They might knock on the window and make you leave. I again, Jasper's is a wonderful, amazing place. It's the next evolution of the sports bar. I'm not sure they're that evolved uh to just like let you leave your car for five straight nights in the parking lot and sleeping it off while before walking back into Jasper's the next day. Maybe they will be fine with that actually if you're if you're there for five straight days. But football's coming, folks. Like in less than two weeks, it's coming. And you're going to need a place to watch the games on Thursday night, Tennessee Bowling Green, for example. You're going to need a place. And you need, and you need a place with free parking, really good food, and a great happy hour. You know who's got that, Steve? Uh, is it
0: Jasper's? It is, in fact, Jasper's. That's what it is. It's Jasper's. You got it, buddy. I'm sorry. Maybe you it. Do, do I need to freeze in the form of a question here in honor of uh, whatever mini scandal may be brewing amongst the uh, Jeopardy uh, Jeopardy host announcement?
1: You know everybody makes those jokes and I don't even get them, so whatever.
0: (laughs) Are you not a Jeopardy watcher? I don't watch Jeopardy. No, is that serious? Is that bad? I mean, it's great. I don't. I don't know why you wouldn't want to.
1: Jeopardy. I watched a lot in college. You just. You either just know the answer to the question or you don't. It's not one of those where you can kind of like take your time and think through it and maybe solve the answer. And because you can use some critical thinking, like it's. That's my problem is that I just don't know like sixty percent of the answers, and so. Eh. Hmm. I don't care about the Prussian War that much, you know. I just don't.
0: Uh, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> that says a lot about you. Oh, come on! I, I am <laughs> I, I I read a lot. I listen to a lot. I consume a lot. I'm well informed. Don't tell me that I need to watch Jeopardy, too. Okay. I'm just. You're taking my rights, Steve. Don't take my rights.
0: <laughs> I don't know Jas- where this is
1: going. Go to Jasper's. Go to Jasper's where they give you complete freedom to make your own choices. <laughs> <laughs>
0: how do you think, how do you think your beats going to change as, as you're taking it on a national focus? Uh, what are you going to try to tell those kinds of stories? Or are you uh, on the, that you would normally sort of consider beat stuff or are you going to try to tell bigger stuff or.
2: Yeah. We- I mean, all the same kind of things. I mean, I may write a few more columns in general, but like the insane stuff, like the things that are infuriating about college football, nobody's in charge. The postseason doesn't make sense. It changes all the time. Like I love that stuff. It's, it's, it's insane. Like that is in tremendous drama. Um, And so I like most of college football. It's my favorite sport. I think so many things about it are interesting. And I just want to write about the stuff that's interesting. I mean, it's the same sort of stuff. They did at Tennessee. Like, what do I think is interesting? And you have enough, I have enough experience in this business that I feel like I have a pretty good barometer of what's interesting and what's not. And if it's interesting to me and I don't know about it. And I have a lot of questions about it. And my nose is pressed up against the glass 365 days a year, whether that's Tennessee or all of college football. I feel like readers are going to appreciate that. And if you put work in and readers can see that, I think they appreciate that as well.
1: It's it's, it doesn't exist. I don't think in any other sport but the scandal portion of college football that is sort of baked into your experience as a fan. And I don't mean the extreme stuff where like people's lives are in danger. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about that kind of stuff, but just sort of your run of the mill recruiting scandals and your Todd Gurley signing autograph stuff. Like I I actually think while people complain outwardly about it, I actually think it's part of why people love the sport so much is that there is this, like you said, we, we don't know who's in charge. We don't know who's making decisions. It's all backroom dealings. It's all these power <laughs> brokers. And oh, by the way, we've got these rules that don't make sense. And then we try to catch people cheating and they, but nobody really cares if they're cheating. It's it's all, yeah. part of, it's all part of the drama.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the Tennessee scandal is like a really good example because it's like the perception of that 15 years ago, you would have thought Jeremy Pruitt executed somebody in market square. But now <laughs> it's kind of like, ah, the kids got some money, like, okay, these are bad rules. They broke the rules. It's kind of like, whatever, like the public perception of it. Nobody is coming away from that being like, I can't believe they did that. Like these, these scoundrels, like you don't hear that anymore. (laughs) And I think that shift, I mean, I think, you know, USC and Miami were kind of the last ones where people were still kind of, you know, tisk tisking all this stuff before people woke up to the idea that like, hey, these rules are terrible and make no sense and are like really oppressive and really limiting in a lot of ways. The rules are bad, not the people that are breaking them. And so, you know, they broke the rules. It is what it is. But like I said, that attitude has changed a lot. And I think that has fueled a lot of some of the change at the high level when people don't want these rules anymore. They're like, this sucks. Uh, And turns out, as we saw with name, image, and likeness, it is sometimes just as simple as let's flip a switch and the rules change. And for years upon years, well, we can't do a playoff. It's going to ruin the sport until we decided to do a playoff. Well, the players can't make money off their name, image, and likeness because like they're doing it for the love of the sport and nobody would watch. And we, we just can't do it. Well, I guess now that people want well, I guess we can do it. Well, we can't do pay for play because everything is broken Well, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. The Supreme Court, when they get involved, it gets a little messy. And it's still amazing to me that in the, the polarized society that we live in, where nobody can agree on anything and everybody's shouting over each other, the most bipartisan issue in Congress is that the NCAA is terrible and serves no purpose. (laughs) It's wild to me that that's the one thing that everybody seems to be able to agree on in Washington.
1: It's funny, uh, a a beheading in Market Square by Jeremy Pruitt, redefining sundown in the city in Knoxville.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it really is. It's amazing, like, (laughs) the stuff they did. I I can't imagine how people be talking about this stuff in, like, 2002. And now it's like, okay, they cheated, but, like, I didn't hear any, you know, buddy... Oh, oh! these kids, they, they got money. Oh, my gosh. Like It's like, oh, good for them. Uh, sucks he couldn't win more games, I guess. I,
1: I, I knew this this person loosely. I've, I have worked around him a couple of times. I've chatted with him, certainly done dozens of interviews with him. I think you probably knew him a lot more than I did. Um, what did it mean to you to be the first recipient of the Edward Ashoff Award?
2: Yeah, I mean, I still... Uh, I had kind of heard he was a little bit sick um and I, but I still remember getting that text i was back home in arkansas and i heard that he had passed and i was able to go to his memorial and i think ed was a ridiculously talented guy and he could do so many different things and uh he just lit people out. i mean ed was just like the best of all of us and i think he was somebody that People should have aspired to be in this business. He treated people unbelievably well. He made the most of his, of his talent and, and did all those things. And so, you know, we worked together for a couple of years at ESPN and, and even after that, you know, we still kept in touch, uh, you know, in the, in the, what, year and a half, two years since I still go back and look at some texts and some, some G chats from back in the day. And, uh, it just meant a lot because, uh, I wanted to be able to do the kind of stuff that I think he would appreciate because he had so much talent and we had a lot of the same sensibilities and it was really cool for me to see him sort of rise up the ranks and get more TV time and move from uh, Atlanta out to LA and then, uh, you know, get engaged and and move back to Atlanta and and be ready to kind of start the next stage of his life. And um, it was cruel that, that his life came to an end in in the way that it did. And, And it's been great to be able to try and honor him with the award and, you know, with his scholarship at Florida, and and by doing work that that would make him proud,
1: and and dressing better, he made me dress. <laughs> he made me dress better on press row because this I is this is what I
2: yeah, this is what I'm like, I always got, say I can't like, I
1: can't look like this sitting next to this guy. I can't do this.
2: Ed is just like the coolest guy in the press box. Like I am not a very <laughs> cool person. I think my wife can attest to that. But Ed is just like a cool guy, and like I love being around him and spending time with him. And like I said uh he was everybody's best friend and uh just a a great guy and the field misses him the people that loved him miss him and and it's been uh great to see him memorialized in in ways that i think he would
0: appreciate uh i want to get a couple of kind of rapid fire uh beat related questions in here Mm -hmm. uh so you don't have to be you don't have to be you don't have to be too expansive on this all right let me just (laughs) let me just throw these out uh Favorite player you interviewed while on the, while on the UT beat? Oh man, that's a
2: good question. I mean, Jawan like was physically unable to lie or be fake. So like (laughs) he just like, you know, he came at it. He was one of the only players that uh, didn't care that he was supposed to wear a Tennessee polo when he was coming into the interview room. Uh, So I think Jawan's probably up there because so much of Tennessee under Jeremy Pruitt was so buttoned up, and Jawan was just not, and it was really refreshing. So he's probably up there. Um, I'm trying to think, they didn't have a lot of big personalities. I mean, Grant Furking is really interesting, and just like he has really interesting perspectives in a lot of ways. Um, so he's probably up there. I'd probably say Jawan just because he he was physically incapable of being anything other than himself. And that's what we want. That's what we ask. And I think that's a big reason why people loved him so much.
0: Favorite, uh, favorite assistant coach to talk to which is well, a little tough in the proof. officially or
2: unofficial <laughs>
0: <laughs> unofficially i mean
2: that was i would probably say t in there in the few times we were able to i think t always has an interesting perspective and in, on tennessee and life and uh you know that staff was a little short on guys that were easy to just sort of talk to as a person so i'd say t probably gets my vote alex Golish, probably on the new staff is up there i spent some time with him at the camps this summer and stuff and he's uh it's not for for the folks who read our piece at the uh, uh, the recruiting confidential piece. I was not surprised to see the coaches uh, really uh, glow about their interactions with Alex Cole. She's
0: he's a, a guy that I can see doing really really well on the recruiting trail. The most uh, the the most interesting figure uh, associated with the program. Ooh.
2: Um, Ooh. I mean, Garantano is up there. I think just because his experience um, of everyone in the building having his back. And fans hating him so much and how he handled that was really uh, he showed a lot of poise because I I still think back to the South Carolina game (laughs) and you know obviously he'd been through I I have not seen a lot of college players go through what he had to go through in terms of how fans treated him after the Alabama debacle you know he knew it wasn't probably what he should have done and all that stuff and uh, that was a tough way but his teammates still had his back and all that stuff. but for him to come off the bench and help beat South Carolina and then he came in the interview room after with his uh, giant cast on and he was talking. <laughs> I remember somebody asked him what the last two weeks were like and he was kind of like, it's been great. Uh, I got a lot of really good advice on social media and all this stuff <laughs> and like you know like he'd been faced with like pretty real death threats and like I, I felt bad for him but that that existence to me was fascinating of the of this guy who, you know, sort of, you know, was the the prince that was promised in so many ways and, like, you know, showed it in practice and and had all the tools but struggled on the field. And then just sort of that existence of where everyone in the building really loved him and outside the building, I have not seen a player catch that much heat from fans. And it's not to say he got anything done on the field. I mean, he struggled on the field, obviously. But that, that, that was fascinating to me personally.
0: The worst, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the most under the radar story uh, at the program? That I've done or that should be done? <laughs> that Both. should be done. Both. <laughs> Both. That
2: should be done. Well, you may have to read that on the athletic very soon. <laughs>
0: uh, come nice on, teeth. give
2: us
1: something. Give us something. Nice teeth. <laughs>
2: I mean, I can't be out here giving ideas for free now. Is it, is it about, (laughs) is it
1: about the booster pyramid? That's what I want to read about. The
2: booster pyramid is always interesting. I mean, booster influence in general, um, board of regents, all that stuff at every university, the lawlessness is maybe a strong word, but the, (laughs) the lack of organization is, is always interesting. I mean, college sports is a mess in so many places. And, uh, because there's a lot of people that when you, when you're, when the, the, the sport is funded the way it is, you're naturally going to have tension and conflict and and that provides a lot of stuff to write about.
0: Finally, what's the worst part of the beat? The
2: worst part of the beat? Well, for me personally, like that gap between hey, we're going to let you see 10 minutes of practice and then people are going to talk after practice and there's like 2 hours in a windowless room. I almost went insane. I can't handle that cuz you're doing that like 3 days a week and like it's very hard to get work done in there. You're talking to people it's just not a conductor or like a, a, an environment conducive to getting anything done. And you're just wasting so much time. Like that, that is by far like that. When the, the couple hours you're sitting in there waiting, like, I just can't, I can't, I can't handle that stuff. It
1: has, has Josh Heupel been better about that or is it the same, same deal?
2: Uh, it's well, I haven't been around a ton. Like we didn't get to see anything in spring. Well, no, I guess we, I forget what we saw in spring. I went out to practice a few times. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a little shorter uh, this time around, but still you have that gap, but, uh, we were, it was a little bit nicer weather with the morning practices. You're not baking outside and there's some shade in that little plaza. So it's yeah. a little better being outside, but that waiting time is, is not great. The,
1: the angriest Jeremy Pruitt ever got at you.
2: So I never got the dressing down angry phone call from him. I would hear stuff like third hand later. So I never had like a direct conflict. I would hear stuff. Hey, He's super pissed about this or whatever. He cared a lot more about the recruiting coverage of his school. He cared a lot about that. His team, he didn't seem to care as much about how, <laughs> what was written about them. I guess in terms of like PR, I thought, I thought you were just gonna, just gonna. I thought you're off from that. Say, what you
1: will? I thought you were just gonna <laughs> say he didn't really care about his team.
2: No, just like in terms <laughs> of what was written. I, I, you know, and we didn't write a ton about recruiting. Um, but there would be stuff that I would hear, you know, second or third hand. Uh. But you know since he left I haven't gotten that invite for coffee from Jeremy yet. Maybe one day. <laughs> maybe one day. But uh let's just say uh of everyone that's left the program he was the one that I did not make su- too much of an attempt to get an exit interview. I don't think he was going to be up for that for a, a, a for a number of reasons. But I never really had I never really had the Jeremy put dressing downs where he didn't do that a ton with with uh with media as much. Um so your your
1: advice to anyone who is new in any Medium covering the Tennessee beat.
2: Don't be a transcription service. There you go. All right. Uh, there you write interesting it. stories. Call people that the university doesn't provide for you to talk to, and they're usually gonna be more interesting than players fielding questions from thirty reporters. I just find that to be a fruitless exercise in many in many cases. It tells you very little. So that's my advice. I, I think Steve and I agree with you on that. I, uh, I can't. I'm trying 100%. to think of the I mean, number of stories. I'm trying to think like so for three years the number of stories that I wrote based off of player availability where that was all like a, a coach press conference and players talking pretty low if you don't count game stories where you sometimes don't have options. And even that, I try to call some people. Like I remember after Maurer's first start, I got his high school coach on the phone, that Georgia game about kind of what that was like um, seeing him hit that 80 yard bomb to, to Callaway. He was driving his daughters back from Disney world. I want to say, I could be wrong about that, but he was listening on the radio and like that kind of stuff. Like that's interesting. Like I don't think they made him available after that game. I'm not sure. I'd have to remember. I, I've slept since then, but of course not. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that, that's my advice. Call, make the extra call. Talk to people that the school doesn't provide you. Um, and, you know, if they let you talk to the linebackers coach, that doesn't mean you have to write a story about the linebackers
0: that day. <laughs> what do you think the, I mean, and this is, this is system-wide. Do you think we're ever going to pull back from the, the kind of paranoia and control freakishness that today's modern coaches seem to have particularly around things like practice, like practice is the, is, is the best example. I yeah. Made. So practice,
2: I don't think so because there's never any, any impetus to do it. Um, meanwhile, in the NFL, every practice is viewed by like a thousand fans like, and people get by with it. I think the sport is be better off by it, but the most powerful people the coaches, they have no reason to open up practice basically. So you're, I, I don't think so now access. I might be getting a little over my skis here, uh, in terms of looking into the crystal ball access, I think is going to change because of NIL, because you can't have yep. three guys talking to the media every week, because then your star running back, that's a freshman that you decided can't talk. You're hurting his, his earning ability and every freshman sees, every recruit sees that. So I think that's going to change. I really do. Um, I think that the, the hypo model of letting, I mean, good grief. How many guys does he let talk like 40 guys or something like that in the first, in the first three weeks of camp that, you know he's not the norm right now that aspect the many voices aspect of it but i think that is going to be a lot more alabama can get away with it because they're alabama but even they might change because it might become a recruiting issue but you know talking the media and having people write about you that's exposure that means people recognize your name that makes you more valuable and that's going to become a recruiting weapon and so ultimately it comes down to recruiting and i think that The access part of it, the letting people talk, I think that is going to change in the sport. Practice, I'm not holding my breath, but I really do feel like access is going to change with name, image, and likeness. And,
1: And you're coming at it from a completely cynical perspective, which I agree with on, but it's also the right thing to do for the player and the individual human to develop and gain their own agency in their building their own brand.
2: Oh, which yeah. is going I- to help
1: them in life become a human being. <laughs>
2: so- I've always agreed with that, but the coaches, you know, have never had a reason to do it. Right. And some coaches don't care, but you know, especially in the sec where so many Saban clones are populating sidelines, you know, you saw the Saban model over and over again. Here's these six guys who are going to talk every time somebody you know wants to talk to somebody and they're going to be our seniors they're going to be well drilled and we're going to have shot callers on them every time they say something <laughs> interesting we're going to zap them and <laughs> you know that's that's kind of been the model and I think that I I you know again I don't want to get on freezing cold takes here but I think that era is going to be changing I, in the next 5 to 10 years
1: yeah i don't think you're over your skis although it is hilarious to imagine like Well, we were lining up in 12 personnel in practice. Ah, ah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you're not allowed to tell them how many tight ends we have on the field. Come on now. Uh, I do hope that I've I've talked to some people around South Carolina and, and I, Shane Beamer claims, or they claim that Shane Beamer wants to open up every single minute of every practice to everybody. Uh, I don't know if he's just saying that because he can, because COVID tells him he's not allowed to. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, I don't think you're over your skis. I I think that's a direction we're headed because of all the reasons you've laid out and, Um, I think it will make fans better players better coaches better the sport better the coverage better the media better I think it's good for everybody so um, yeah grow
2: the game I suppose as the as the golfers would say Um, I I think college football has been hurt by the approach that coaches have taken because coaches are the most powerful people on campus and they are going to be going to be the people that call the shots in their program. Their job is not to grow college football. Their job is to win games. And in that pursuit, I think it has hurt the sport as a whole. And I think name, image, and likeness is really going to help the sport as a whole.
1: David, this has been fantastic, man. Uh, best of luck in the new role, everybody. Pay for good journalism, of course, at theathletic.com. Uh, man, you. You, you told great stories. You did your job. And, and uh, I you know can't wait to see what you guys are working on in the future. So thank you for giving us some of your time. We do appreciate it.
2: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. If I ever get that coffee invite from Jeremy Pruitt, I'll come on the podcast and talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you just record it and send it to us, please? I'm not holding my breath. I don't know that that one's ever going to arrive. I don't know that I'm his favorite person. But you know what? I'll still sleep at night. It'll be okay. I think I've, I've,
1: <laughs> no no coaches' egos were harmed in the making of this podcast. It,
2: I think I, I'm, I'm okay with with not everybody can like me at this point. And I think he's probably on that list. So yep. yeah. part part of the job. Such man. is life. <laughs> yep. Part of the job. Thank
1: you so much, dude. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Special thanks to David Ubbin of the Athletic. Wish him best of luck, of course, in his next step, next chapter of his career. Of, of I've had a uh, an opportunity to to work around and with him a couple of different times and just really enjoy his work. I think he sees the business in the right way, executes the business in a way that I appreciate and and I hope Tennessee fans and I think Tennessee fans absolutely appreciated uh, what he did. We're going to have a lot longer conversation about some recommendations and some media coverage of current events currently as as they are unfolding around the world in just a second, Steve, but just D- David up and
0: I hope people enjoyed that as much as I did. I think David is David is a is a good sort of case study for for the success of the athletic. You hire really smart people, you put them into a beat that people care a lot about and you try to tell the most interesting parts of that of that story and they've had success you know they've had success growing it because of it and I'm, I'm, I've had a lot of I've, I've enjoyed him a lot as a, a consumer of a lot of UT news uh, and I wish him the best. I think he's going to be great on the national beat. I don't know if they know what they're going to do yet
1: to fill that spot. As of right now, I, I don't know if there's someone scheduled to take that role. Um, I would expect a few other reporters on The Athletic to sort of pick up the slack a little bit. But uh, we'll see what they do with that that role. Because like you said, it's definitely a beat that people care deeply about,
0: as David just explained. So, Well, and uh, you know, again, we have no insight in, into this. I, I, you would think that that is one of the marquee kind of spots trying to cover uh, trying to have coverage of, for instance, all of the SEC ACC, Big 12 schools. Uh, you would hope that they would have a, a, a UTB writer kind of kind of moving yes. into that position. So
1: you would hope, Steve, you would hope. One uh, would hope, one would hope. All right, let's get to recommendations here and I want to sort of package recommendations sort of into a media conversation. Obviously, the U.S. withdrawal from the Afghan war is sort of dominating coverage across every, every medium, right? It's just sort of, it is sort of front and center for everybody. The visuals are uh, obviously incredibly, um, cr- creates incredible senses of emotion. And, and I guess, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on how the coverage has been. I, I will give you my recommendations because I, I, I struggle with watching the coverage and how everything seems to be a 20-year <laughs> war involving four presidencies has been boiled down to like a press conference or a tweet, or a, a th- and it's just, it's just not this is not one of those subjects in our lives where we should be trying to, to deal with it on, on Twitter <laughs> or cable news or even a column in a newspaper. I think you need more than that. And so, my recommendations, for example, the press box from The Ringer uh, had an episode with Spencer Ackerman, who wrote uh, a, a new book called Reign of Terror which sort of describes all the decisions we've made as a country from, you know, right from uh, 2001, all the way up to to Joe Biden's decisions. Pod Save the World is an excellent resource this week. Their episode was entirely dedicated to every aspect of this. They were involved with the Obama administration that increased the surge in 2009. And and they are critical of their own decisions. And, And of course, I've got a book here that I think I will recommend in just a second, Steve, that I think gives people a different perspective. But my message is I'm just disappointed that the media while it is important to see what's happening in real time I am disappointed in and in, in not not surprised that the the media structure we have created for ourselves is not really capable of handling the nuance and the depth and the complication that this story really delivers to people
0: I, I don't think the, the most frustrating part of it for me is that I don't think that you can you can boil 20 years worth of Foreign policy decision makings into an instant political calculus, and the, the, the really frustrating part of this is to is to see what was a bipartisan decision. I mean, the last administration, the Trump administration, had wanted to had wanted to do this pullout. Biden had uh, had been very much on the record as wanting to get out of Afghanistan as well, and you know changed the timeline, but but essentially you know executed the policy that the, that the Trump administration had put in. And the, the whole sort of it's not to, it's not that I'm surprised by people trying to dogpile an instantly bad situation for political purposes. It's that we all of a sudden people transmitting that have no context for, you know, what you know, what what's happening and, and no context for the fact that this <laughs> a decision to stay in Afghanistan would have been a very bad decision. Over the yeah. long run, I mean, yeah. we we have we have nothing to show for it over twenty years. I, I, I trying to trying to trying to decide who won and lost this thing here in you know in in the minutes you know in the final minutes of of a U.S. presence there is seems to me to be mildly insane, and yet that seems to be that that seems to have been the default position of kind of like every single cable news network, a right. lot of the national right. political reporting around this, and it's just. It is it is some of it is some of the worst kind of coverage that you'll find.
1: And and to me, it, it sort of embodies and I'm trying to keep this on media and not politics per se, but but it embodies a story that that sort of delivers all of the different aspects of the of the media struggle, which is that there are th- the, all the different actors involved in this have agency, both good and bad, including the president you voted for. whoever if you're listening to this podcast at this point of the show, you know that we're trying to be as fair and as objective as possible. Whichever guys you voted for in the past twenty years, that one made good decisions and bad decisions throughout this entire process. Um, and so it, it's but but there's no space for that kind of conversation. There's no space for that. we We lost. The question should not be what is happening currently, although those are important, it, it should be, the the entire twenty year story that should be told, and so I, again, I recommend specific. And this is where I think the podcast medium is one of the few mediums that allows you, experts in in this particular subject matter, to go for forty five minutes and an hour or an hour and fifteen minutes of, to try to explain twenty years worth of decision making and 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 results and consequences because of it. This is not one of those subjects that works in all of the mainstream media outlets. It just doesn't. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't work that way.
0: And, and, and particularly because because a lot of us like in, in the moments like this, you know, turn to turn to cable news. I mean, good example. Uh, so I, I'm on a I'm on a trip uh, at a friend's house in Colorado on, on Sunday morning. But I, what I usually do, I flip on the news just to see if anything if anything's been happening and I've been getting some alerts. And, you know, sure enough, you know, there's the there's the, the fall of uh, of Cobble kind of right there on TV the, because our impetus. Is, is for conflict, is to report conflict um, and tension as opposed to sort of context and knowledge. <laughs> uh, sometimes the, I, I really think that we're, we're very poorly equipped in the moments that it's happening to explain it in uh, anything other than political conflict terms. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, as a result, the, the coverage devolved very quickly into blame and, you know, then every political actor in the world is hopping in in the middle right. of the blame because of X, Y or Z. And, 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 and that's very frustrating from uh, from from just from the, the point of view of trying to get facts about what is happening and understand it.
1: And, and one of the one of the media's biggest issues in covering these types of things is assuming that the bad faith discussions are good faith right and that that that's the issue there are some good faith people making bad decisions and some bad faith people making good decisions and there's all of that and it's super complicated and nuanced you know and there's just a million different things to this story um, and again i think books long form r- long form reporting podcasts i think you need to take time if you want to truly understand this don't read twitter don't watch cable news don't you know even read a a quick 400 500 word story if you truly want to understand what actually took place, you're going to have to spend time on it. And, and I think that's I don't know, I think that's sort of the conversation here. I, I want to
0: um, well, and, and, and I would say and, and I would say to that too, you know trying to find as much context is, is important because it, it's the story of a loss. The uh, US, US policy in Afghanistan has been a failure in almost every kind of way that you, you would want that you would want to measure it. Except, except for the so, first three months. Those first three months were good. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but, uh, you know, the moment it switched into into nation building from yeah, yeah. from from trying to hunt Al Qaeda, it, it, be, it became problematic. And, it, and, it, and it's the whole, you know, you you broke it, you bought it kind of kind of thing. And that's what we've had for the last 20 years. And so the media does not do well necessarily with uh, I mean, particularly broadcast media does not do well with reporting losses like that in terms of context that they yep. and so uh, i think you're exactly right And those are all good wrecks because you you have to you have to take kind of a broader view of things uh, you can't just sort of go here's a winner here's a loser we're, we're done
1: and and along those lines in sort of a lighter hearted way but is sort of tied into it um, i want to recommend a an actual novel i don't recommend fiction very often but a, an actual fiction an actual piece of fiction here because it won the pulitzer prize and was the um, uh, the book of the year uh, I believe, and I want to say 2016. It's by Viet Nguyen, um, and it's called The Sympathizer. And it is about a sort of, it's, it's sort of satire meets spy thriller meets identity politics meets who am I as a person. It, it's all of these things, but it is, about a, it is about a spy who is working in Saigon when, when we have to leave Saigon and when and we have to leave Vietnam. And he's a Vietnamese... Individual who's actually working for the Communist Party, but he's he's actually in, embedded in the U.S. Uh, you, you know, the, sort of the U.S. military at the time. He moves to America and and spends time in America, but is still "quote unquote" sympathizing right back with with people. And, and he ends up in France, and he has all these different identities. And it's some of it's satire, and some of it's just trying to show a, a big world experience through the other lens, um, through other people's eyes. And so again, it's it's a really fun read, incredibly. Well written, um, you know. I, I can read the. I can read some of the the blurbs here if you want, Steve. But uh, basically, a remarkable debut, both thriller and social satire. That's from the New York Times. So there you awesome. go. Awesome, check it out. The Sympathizer.
0: Awesome. I have a, I have a recommendation that is a hundred and eighty degrees in the opposite direction from this take conversation. Us, take us
1: somewhere else, man. Uh,
0: so I, I was was on vacation here uh, for a few days. was that with some some friends and somebody had mentioned said, Hey, have you seen, uh, have you seen this interview on the show I'm about to tell you about? And they, and I said, no. And so we ended up watching it, ended up watching a couple of episodes on it. Norm Macdonald had a very, had a one season uh, show on Netflix called Norm Macdonald has a show. And (laughs) it is, it, it makes fun of sort of the conventions of, the uh, of the like the nightly talk interview kind of show uh, while at the same time having some pretty good interviews and, and, and in particular there's a David Spade interview and these things these are like half hour episodes or so half hour 45 minutes it is so fantastic about sort of the meta-ness of both the interview and of sort of the comedy profession in general and kind of Norm's place within it uh, you know if, if you're if you're unfamiliar with Norm he is an interesting character to say, to say the least he, he was the he was the uh, the weekend update guy for several years on on snl uh, and, and has done some other stuff but his his style of comedy is very specific and it's very very abrasive but not in a not in a only in like an accessibility sort of way not in a not in right, a right, right. like a foul mouth sort of way he's just he, he's a he's a you either get him or you don't and if you do you you'll, you're going to absolutely love this thing. It, it's okay. it's very it's very well done, and particularly the Spade episode are just it, it's just it's just good mindless fun. It's good stuff.
1: There we go. See, we started, you know, just kind of down the middle with David Up and talking about the Vols and telling some good stories and some funny stories. Some and then and then we get real heavy and serious and make, then, then as, it as gets we dark and then and, and then <laughs> as we work our way out, we get to some fiction and now some comedy. See, there we go. We, we've given you the gambit of emotions here on the program today um just just don't think you know about the entire afghan war because of a tweet okay that's all i'm saying (laughs) i think that's a i think that's
0: that's a good lesson for just about
1: anything (laughs) that's probably that's probably true and go watch uh what's it give me the name of the show again uh donald has a show
0: has a show (laughs) e-i-e-i-o yeah Yeah. that's
1: um, you're not a dad you're not allowed to make that joke
0: uh, Braden, where can people find you on the socials
1: they can find me at Braden Gall of course at 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook please share the product it's really all that we ask we know that those of you who are listening at this point of the show are very dedicated we appreciate you we love you please share the show tell one of your friends about the product it is really really important to us and we greatly appreciate it so do that sure. and you and you Steve <laughs> can you be a to set
0: you up you can't just take it from there I mean sure I mean, a professional would have, but whatever. Uh, My name is Steve Cavendish. You can find me on Twitter at Cavendish. If you like us, rate and review and subscribe. Please tweet at him that he can go to hell. Um, (laughs) (laughs) lame Lame Stream Sports is brought to you by? Jaspers. Always brought to you by Jaspers. Home of free parking. What else? Boozy popsicles. Deb Paquette's menu. Keep going.
1: It is the next evolution of the sports park. There we go. That's what I was looking for. For Steve Cavendish, my name is Braden Gall. Special thanks to David Ubbin for joining us. Special thanks to all you guys for listening. We do appreciate it. Share the product. This has been Lame Stream Sports on the 440 Sports Network.